Let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, this verse 6 picks up with the word yet. So you know Paul is in the middle of a thought here. And what he's been addressing up to this point is the foolishness of the gospel. To most people, when you tell them you can be saved because God's son came and died on the cross, that sounds foolish. How does that help anybody that God's son would die? And if he really was God's son, how could he die? And that might even be offensive. You're telling me that my sin is so bad that somebody needs to die for me? And this is what's called the foolishness or the scandal of the gospel. But Paul makes the point here, this is indeed wisdom. It does not seem like wisdom to those in the world, but we have, I love this, a secret hidden wisdom of God. Isn't that cool? All God's people said cool. <laughs> hidden secret wisdom. And this is important because although the gospel seems foolish, it is not foolish. Although it seems illogical, it is not illogical. It is a higher wisdom, and it is just wisdom that's operating with all the facts. Now, twice in this passage, he refers to the rulers of this age. Now, understanding what that means is what opens this passage up for us to understand what Paul is getting at. Who are the rulers of this age? Now, it's very simple options here. The first one is that this is just talking about the kings and the presidents and the senators and the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Nobody rules forever. Yes, but when Paul refers to the rulers of this age, plural in this way, as all collectively having crucified the Lord of glory, who is Jesus, he's getting at something deeper than that. You might know this verse. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against who? The rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul tells us in Ephesians, the enemy of the church is not people. It's the devil and his angels, the rulers of this age. The Bible talks in many places, especially Daniel, about the ranks of authority that Satan has established over the world. And Paul says that none of those rulers in 1 Corinthians 2 understood this deep wisdom of God. Because if they had known what God was up to, they would never have crucified Jesus. And this is one reason why we know he's talking about spiritual rulers, because if it was a human ruler who knew that this death would mean forgiveness of sins, they might have reluctantly agreed to crucify Jesus. But who's the one person above all that does not want man to be saved? Well, that's the devil. The crucifixion, when Jesus was killed, came at the inspiration of the devil in his attempt to destroy God's promised Messiah. 
We've got to go all the way back to the beginning here. The Garden of Eden. When God created the whole world and he put man and woman in a perfect place, but there was a serpent in the garden. And that serpent was the devil himself. And he tempted Adam and Eve to break God's one rule, which was do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, they brought death and ruin to God's world. They started off all the negative things that we hate about life so much. But God, in his kindness, did not destroy us right there. God had told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? Die. Die. Now, they didn't. Is that because God was lying? No, it's because God is kind. They did eventually die, as we all do. But the Lord says, I'm going to be kind and wait. And God, in the book of Genesis, pronounced a curse, not just upon the world, but upon the devil himself. In Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent, he told the devil, who was the serpent, I will put enmity. Kids, enmity means hatred. We're going to be enemies, right? I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord told the devil, one day that woman is going to have a child that is going to crush you. You're going to hurt him, but he's going to crush you. He said, Satan, one day, the seed of woman, a child will be born who will crush the head of the serpent. A son will be born. So from that day forward, Satan had one goal. That was to stop the arrival of the son. If this child is born, he's going to crush me. He's going to put a stop to everything I've worked for. He's going to bring back what I've broken. So if you read throughout your Bible... It's one long unfolding story of Satan trying to stop the birth of the Messiah. Because Satan hates us all. The devil likes to pretend that he's our friend, that he knows better, that he's got something that God won't offer us, but he hates and despises us. And there's, there's seven times that we see in Scripture where Satan tried to destroy the seed of the woman. The first time happened almost immediately after the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had two sons. They were kids, do you remember their names? Cain and Abel, right. Now, Abel was a good man. Cain was not. And Cain became jealous of his brother. And even though God warned him, Cain was tempted by Satan to destroy Abel. What was the devil doing here? He was saying, we're going to kill the righteous one and corrupt the other one. So now there's no more sons left to crush my head someday. That was his first attempt. But God, instead of bringing an end to the line of Adam and Eve, he preserved the line and allowed it to continue. So then in Genesis chapter 6, the devil tried something else. This, this is what gave rise to what we call the Nephilim. This is when Satan said, I'm going to corrupt the bloodline of everybody on the earth. And the Bible tells us that there were fallen angels, demons, that had children with women in order to corrupt the line. And they were wicked giants, the Bible says. And so what Satan says, if I can corrupt the whole bloodline of the world, then the son can't be born and can't crush my head. But there was one righteous man left. What was his name? Noah. 
So God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to flood the world. I'm going to wipe out that entire corrupted bloodline and start over with Noah and his three children. Well, as time goes on, God chooses one man to be the father of his nation. It was a man named Abraham. And God told Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. So we knew it was going to come through Eve, and then it had to come through Seth, because he was the only righteous one. Then it had to come through Noah, because he was the only one left. Now Satan knows Abraham. Abraham's child is going to be the one to crush my head. So what did Satan do? Satan afflicted Abraham and all of his children's wives with barrenness. Have you noticed that all the children of Abraham, their wives had trouble conceiving children? That he inspired Abraham to try and have a child with Hagar rather than with Sarah, his wife? That Sarah was barren for many years, so was Rebekah, so was Rachel. He put hatred between uh, Leah, Jacob's other wife, and him. He brought in these other concubines to try to ruin the line. Because he said, if we can ruin this one and put a stop to it, the son will never be born and never crush my head. But that didn't work. The children of Israel multiplied so much that Pharaoh was afraid. He said, there's so many Israelites here. If they decided to fight against us, we couldn't stop them. So Satan whispered in his ear and says, here's what you do. Take all the sons, all the newborn baby boys of the Israelites and throw them into the Nile River. Now we think, what a wicked thing. Who would do something like that? Somebody that is listening to the voice of Satan, who says, I know that the conqueror is coming from this nation, so if we can kill all the baby boys, that'll be it. We'll leave the girls, the girls will marry Egyptians, and the line will be corrupted. Because that way, the son can't be born, and he'll never crush my head. But the Lord delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And in fact, he inflicted justice back upon the Egyptians by striking their firstborn dead after this had happened. Well, Israel becomes a nation. Israel has kings and has queens and is thriving in the promised land. So what's Satan going to do? He says, I'm going to get these people to corrupt themselves. And he corrupted the people to go after false idols and start to worship other gods. They began to kill their own children in worship of, of their false gods. They began to intermarry with the other nations, which they were not supposed to do. And eventually their wickedness grew so great, God sent them out of the promised land and scattered them all over the world. And Satan maybe thought his job was done. They're going to get so lost and so mixed up in all these other nations, the sun will never be born and never crush my head. But here's the thing. The Lord is faithful to his covenant and brought the people back into the land. In fact, they stayed in that land through empire after empire oppressing them and crushing them until, under Emperor Tiberius of Rome, a baby was born of a virgin named Mary, and his name was Jesus. And when Jesus was born, the angels announced to the whole shepherding countryside, He's been born! The Messiah's been born! Go tell everyone! But when King Herod found out that the king of the Jews has been born, King Herod said, hey, tell me where you find him so that I can go and worship him too. Did he really want to go and worship Jesus? No. He wanted to make sure there was no king but himself. But when they couldn't find baby Jesus, when the wise men didn't tell him where he was, King Herod, with Satan whispering in his ear, said, every 
two-year-old boy and younger in the region of Bethlehem is to be put to death. Can you imagine? What a, again, what a horrible, wicked, terrible thing. Jesus' family had to flee back to Egypt of all places to avoid this. Why? Because Satan was trying to put a stop to the one that was going to crush his head. But Jesus survived. And not only that, he lived and he grew up. He began to preach. The Lord protected him. The Lord preserved him. They tried to kill him over and over and over again. It didn't work. Until finally... The Bible tells us in John chapter 13, verse 27, 2,000 years ago tonight, the Last Supper, I guess it would have been last night, but it's this day, Satan inspired one of Jesus' disciples, one of his best friends, to betray him. John 13, 27 tells us, while they're eating the Last Supper, after he had taken the morsel from Jesus, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. And from that moment on, Satan himself was possessing Judas Iscariot. We're going to get him tonight. He's growing in power. He's growing in strength. I cannot let this happen. If we let him speak to the people, he's going to become the king. He's going to set up the kingdom of heaven and my head will be crushed. So while Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, in the middle of the night, they see torches coming through the trees. And here comes Jesus' friend, Judas. And Judas goes to Jesus and says, Oh, Rabbi, and kisses him. And that was the signal. Judas said, In the dark, you won't be able to recognize them, but the one that I kiss, that's Jesus. And all the soldiers came forward and arrested Jesus. In the middle of the night, they tied him up and they carried him away. And all of his brave disciples ran away so that he was by himself. Where did they take him? Did they take him to court like they were supposed to? They took him to the high priest's house. And if you know your history, the high priest at this time was functioning much more like the godfather than the high priest of Israel. He was running that nation like his own crime syndicate. They bring him to his house in the middle of the night and they begin to try to find something to convict him of. And they're bringing in all these witnesses and none of them can agree with each other because Jesus hadn't done anything. Until eventually they asked him to his face, are you the Christ are you the Messiah? Are you the seed of woman we've been waiting for? And Jesus said, yes, I am. And one day you're going to see me riding on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, blasphemy. And these priests, these men of God began to beat Jesus. These old venerable men, these elders of the people fell on him, began to strike him with their hands and pull out his beard. Because Satan knew he's admitted it. He's got to go. Or they do early in the morning, they take him to the Roman governor because they had no authority to execute anybody because they had executed way too many people without permission before. So they go to Pontius Pilate and they say, this man is teaching other people not to pay taxes to Caesar, which wasn't true. Pontius Pilate knew that. He brings him in and he investigates. He goes, this guy hasn't done anything. But the Jews are pressing him. You must crucify this man. Get rid of him. We don't want him anymore. And he goes, crucify him? Even if he did something wrong, he's not worthy of death. So what does Pilate do? He says, here, I know that y'all want to see him punished. So I'm going to have Jesus punished. And then we'll let him go. So what did they do? They flogged Jesus. 
They took what was called the cat of nine tails, the flagellum. It was a long seven-stranded leather whip with pieces of bone and metal and glass attached to it. And they beat Jesus' back, every whip ripping the flesh off of his back until the blood flowed. Can you imagine the demon hordes unseen cackling at that scene? They bring him out. Pilate says, fine, it's a, it's a feast day. I'll let one prisoner go. How about Jesus? And they said, no, Barabbas, the violent, murderous revolutionary. Let him go. He says, then what am I supposed to do with Jesus? Crucify him, they said. Can you hear the devil egging the crowd on? Put him to death. Don't let him go. Don't let him leave. Even though God sent Pilate's wife a dream warning her, don't crucify this man. But Pilate was afraid. He was a coward. And if you read in John 19, verses 14 through 18, after Jesus has been beaten, after Jesus has been mocked, after he's been whipped, after he had his beard pulled out, it was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. So it's about noon. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Even in his cowardice, Pilate prophesied to these people, This is your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, And you can hear the father pleading through this man, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, or Calvary. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. What does crucifixion mean? It means they laid out a beam of wood, and they stretched out his hands and they put nails in each of his hands and nailed him to that piece of wood. They took his feet and nailed him to the beam going downward. And they lifted him up so that he was hanging there by the nails in his hands and his feet. The cruel soldiers had put a crown of thorns on his head. His head was bleeding. His back was bleeding. His body was broken. Patches of skin were torn out from his face. The Bible says they didn't even recognize him as a man. He was so battered. And there he hung, the one that God had promised. Can you just imagine the demonic exaltation here? As again, these venerable saints of Israel begin to mock. Who does that? Who mocks a dying man? Somebody being inspired by all the demonic hordes of hell, that's who. Even the one hanging next to him began to revile him. As the seed of woman hung there, you saved others, save yourself. Come on down from that cross if you are who you say you are. And Jesus died on that cross. And though no one was there to mourn for him, for all his disciples had forsaken him, the earth itself mourned for Jesus. The sky grew dark. An earthquake shocked the city. It ripped the veil of the temple in two. It was so powerful as the earth itself reeled. No! And what had happened to the seed of woman, the son of the living God? They took him down. A spear pierced his side. Taken to a borrowed tomb. He couldn't even afford a place to die. They wrapped him up, rolled a stone in front of the tomb, and the hope of humanity was buried beneath the earth. Satan's victory seemed absolutely complete. 
I finally got him. I've been trying since the dawn of history to put a stop to this, and I finally got him. There's no one that can stop me now. Can you imagine Satan going into the throne room of God to exalt and mock and shame him in front of all the angels? Can you imagine the guards of Sheol themselves announcing to all those waiting for their redemption, it's over, you lost, you're never getting out of here now. Satan has won. The weapon of death was used to kill the very one who had promised to put an end to it. The seed had been crushed. Saturday rolled around the Sabbath day as they rest, remembering the day that God rested. But I don't think any of Jesus' disciples were resting that day. But what did Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? The rulers of this world did not understand what they were doing. The hidden, secret wisdom of God that they did not get. The crucifixion of Jesus was the most colossal error that the devil ever committed. The most stupid thing he ever could have done for himself. Because what happened when Jesus died on that cross, his blood was used as the sacrifice to pay for sins. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, glorified and greater than ever before. His death wasn't just victory by the devil. The devil was signing his own death warrant. Isaiah 53 had prophesied, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone. And we have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus wasn't dying for his own sin. He didn't have any sin. But because he was the son of God, he was able to take all of humanity's sin upon his infinitely broad shoulders and carry it all down into the grave with him. But because he was perfect, the blood was accepted. He paid the price. We deserve to die on that cross. But Jesus died for us. And when the serpent bruised his heels, the Son of God crushed his head. Yes, he hurt him, but he got his head crushed. Now there's no more power against us. Don't be afraid of the devil. The devil's greatest moment was his greatest defeat. And as Paul said, if he had known that, he would never have crucified Jesus. But in his arrogance, in his foolishness, and in the infinite higher wisdom of God, he crucified Jesus. And that itself was his greatest failure. So where does that leave us now? There's a sacrifice for sins. The Old Testament is the saints of God crying out for something to forgive us. But you and I get to live in the days where it's already happened. Deliverance from death is yours. Forgiveness of sins is yours. Eternal life in heaven will be yours. Peace and joy now are yours, all offered freely by the blood of Jesus, who paid everything that it costs to achieve those things. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You talk about student loan forgiveness. How about the debt of sin forgiven freely? This he set aside, meaning that list of all the things you've done, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And as the blood of Jesus ran down over it, you couldn't even read the list of things you've done anymore. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Disarm the rulers, put them to shame. They act all spooky and scary, and we sit here mocking and laughing at them for thinking that they could have won over our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan has shown to be weak and foolish by the cross, while God stands in victory forever. God told Satan what was going to happen. You'll, you'll bruise his heel, it'll hurt, but that same heel is going to crush your head. And I'd rather be bruised on the heel than crushed in the head, I'll tell you that. As it is written, verse 9, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even imagine the blessings that God has for us in Christ that have been won at the cross. And Satan, who thought he had won, he lost by making that last move. It's almost like Jesus baited him into it. He spends that whole last week openly announcing himself. Satan panics and kills him. And now we have forgiveness of sins forever. Y'all, if you stand here today and the devil is telling you that you can never be delivered, that he's got hold of you, he's got hold of your family, he's got hold of your heart, Satan has no power. Why would you listen to somebody that lost everything? Why would you not instead listen to the one that conquered him and said, I've already paid it all. And I've washed your sins as white as snow. If you today have not come and received the forgiveness that Jesus offers, let this be your day. Yes. 